Some of you may have noticed that I'm hobbling around up here this morning. I, uh, I'm afraid I aggravated a knee injury this weekend in uh, that high-risk midlife activity of stretching before exercise. <clears throat> so I'm wearing a brace and hoping that my hobbling won't be a distraction to you or to me. Throughout this season of Lent, we've been rethinking normal together. We're doing this as an act of hope, trusting that this global pandemic will soon recede and that life will return to some kind of normal in the months ahead. We're also doing this as an act of careful discipline, stopping to consider what lessons we need to learn from this past year, lest we rush headlong into a thoughtless future. So far in this series, we've talked about worship and discipleship, security and anxiety, and the call to a life of self-denial. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about love and Christian community. One of the greatest hardships of this past year has been the way in which social distancing has led to the loss of community. Now, some of us have been hit much harder by this than others, but we've all experienced a loss of proximity to those we care about and a loss of intimacy as a result. Now, technology has provided us with ways to connect that prior generations could only dream of. And although this has been a godsend, it has also reminded us that being together physically is so much more powerful and so much more enjoyable than being together virtually. Distance from one another has only been part of the problem, however. We've also been beset by social and political conflict that's eaten away at our shared life like cancer. This has affected families, friend, friend groups, the communities where we live, and it's also affected the church. We've learned through distance and division that community is hard to come by. But at the same time, it is absolutely necessary for our health and wholeness as human beings. We know that if we're going to flourish as God's people, we need to understand the kind of community he wants to build among us and how we get there from here. Now, the passage I've chosen from John's gospel, it's not the most obvious or practical text to turn to for teaching on community life. Jesus' command to love one another, however, it's incredibly powerful in its directness and simplicity. And the context in which Jesus gives his command, the betrayal, lends this teaching a special urgency. So we're going to focus on that command in the final verses of our text in a moment. But before we get there, I want to walk you through the action that precedes what Jesus says at the end of the text. So Jesus and his disciples are at dinner. They're celebrating the Passover feast. And from the description that John gives, we know that they're doing this in a traditional manner, reclining on cushions around a U-shaped table with Jesus right at the head. This is Jesus' last night with them. In a few short hours, he'll be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and sentenced to death. The next day, he'll be killed. Jesus knows this, but the men don't. He's told them what's coming, but they haven't been able to hear. These 12 men, they've been with him and with each other through everything. 
For the better part of three years, they've shared everything together. They've experienced Jesus' miracles. They've heard him teach. They've suffered his rebukes. And they have watched him live out the love of God day in and day out in everything that he's done. They are not prepared for this to end. And that's why Jesus has gathered them. He has a few final things to do and to say before he's taken from them. Every word, every glance, every action at the table, it's full of significance for Jesus, even if the disciples are slow to understand. Earlier that evening, when they first gathered for supper, Jesus removed his outer clothes and he took up a towel and a basin and he carefully washed each man's feet. They were shocked and they were embarrassed. Afterwards, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In this extraordinary act of humility, Jesus sets an example for these men of how they are to serve one another. One that will still be firmly in their minds when he returns to talk about their love for one another just a little bit later. As dinner progresses, Jesus begins to speak plainly to them about what's going to happen to him. This is at the beginning of the passage we read a few moments ago. John writes, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. You know, Mark tells us in his gospel that at this point, the disciples began to say one after another, is it I? After all that time together, they didn't know who the betrayer was. And each one, of them, each one of them had a deep enough awareness of his own brokenness that he could conceive of himself somehow falling prey to circumstances and betraying Jesus. They must have been so confused and disturbed in that moment together. Well, John continues with his description. And he offers a perspective unique to him because John is the beloved disciple who carries on the conversation with Jesus that comes next. So verse 24. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now we can just imagine Peter sitting along one arm of this U-shaped table, catching John's eye, raising his eyebrows, and then nodding toward Jesus on John's left side. And the quiet conversation that followed was just between John and Jesus, verse 25. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he to whom I'll give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The others didn't realize that Judas was the one. 
They hadn't heard John's whispered question and Jesus' quiet response. They had no idea that Satan had come into their midst and inhabited one of their friends. And when Jesus sent him out, they were none the wiser. But John knows. John knows, and when he writes, it was night, we are meant to understand that the darkness is closing in. Well, in this context of looming darkness, coming betrayal, and inevitable suffering, Jesus prepares his disciples for life without him. In these final verses, he introduces three themes that he'll develop at length in the chapters that follow. His glory, his absence, and then the love that he longs for his disciples to have for one another. Now, although the first two are important, for the sake of today's topic, I'm going to skip to that final theme, which Jesus introduces in verses 34 and 35. This is what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that what Jesus is most concerned about on this most important night is that these men and the people they will gather around themselves in his name learn to love each other in a new and radical way. And this is where I want for us to linger as we rethink love and community. In particular, I want to focus briefly on three aspects of this love. The uniqueness of Christian love, the cost of Christian love, and then the power of Christian love. So first, the uniqueness. So Jesus says to the men, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. But it's not an altogether new commandment, is it? Throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people to love their neighbors. And Jesus affirms this command multiple times during his teaching ministry. The newness that Jesus is referring to is explained by his next words. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The command may be old, but the example is new. And that's because no one has ever loved like Jesus loved. His example, it puts flesh on the bones of God's command. To love like Jesus, it's to serve with humility and it's to sacrifice oneself for the sake of others. It's to wash feet and walk the way of the cross. Now it's important for us to note here that Jesus is talking about the love we are to have for one another within the church. Now elsewhere, he'll talk about loving the world, but here, his focus is on how the disciples will love each other and how we ought to love each other as we follow in their ways. Now there are isolated pockets and occasional instances of this kind of love outside of the church. But there is no other community in the world where this kind of love is assumed as the standard for every member. When believers in Jesus follow his example, we experience life together unlike any other community in the world. And we need this reminder of what our life together is meant to look like because all too often we fall painfully short. The church, it's not merely a gathering of people with shared beliefs. The church is a gathering of people who have been placed into divinely appointed, divinely created relationships with the expectation that we will serve each other 
and be willing to sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of one another. This is the uniqueness of Christian love. I said earlier that one of the tragedies of this past year has been the distance we've experienced from one another. It's hard to serve and it's hard to sacrifice when you're not actually around other people, isn't it? But I've been deeply encouraged by the many of you here physically, those of you online, uh, who have made an effort to stay connected with fellow believers in any way you can. Those who have participated in Bible studies, community groups, and wow, even with all of the disadvantages of, of gathering virtually. And those of you who have led these groups have been real heroes this past year. Some of us, though, have gotten lazy when it comes to real relationships with other believers. With the convenience of worship services online and the frustrating inadequacy of Bible studies or community groups through Zoom, some of you have just taken a time out from fellowship. That needs to be corrected. Real community requires real effort. And for those who have taken a time out, it's time to re-engage. Another reason this has been a hard year for maintaining and deepening true fellowship is because of the tensions that we've experienced socially and politically within our wider society. I'm willing to guess that almost every single one of us has had a friend or family member stop speaking to us this year for one reason or another. Or perhaps you've stopped speaking to a friend or family member. As we rethink what our new normal is going to look like, I want to ask you to put Christian fellowship and Christian friendship at the top of your list of priorities. We need the kind of love that Jesus calls us to in this passage. And we cannot get this love anywhere except in Christ's church. What sets the Christian church apart from any other organization or religious group isn't just what we believe, although that does set us apart. It's how we love each other. It's what makes our Christian love unique, and it's what makes our love for each other so costly. It's about service and sacrifice. And that's the, last, the next thing I want to reflect on, the cost of Christian love. So one of the most stunning things about this passage is the transition from Judas's departure to Jesus's teaching about love. Think about this moment and what Jesus doesn't say. Instead of warning the disciples to be on guard against traitors and betrayers, Jesus tells them to love each other. It's practically the opposite of what we might expect. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about false teachers or those who would betray others for personal gain. He's just more concerned with showing these men how to love each other. Remember, he washed Judas' feet. Jesus knows that in the weeks and months ahead, that love is going to be tested. It'll require service and sacrifice to keep this tiny band of faithful men together in the face of Satan's attacks and the world's disregard. Well, you know, the same holds true for us today. Life together is costly. It's costly physically, financially, socially, and emotionally. Loving brothers and sisters with financial needs is going to cost you money. 
Loving the needy person in your community group is going to cost you time on the phone over lunches and during the holidays. Loving a fellow believer with a different political perspective, it's going to cost you mentally and emotionally as you fight together to discover what really matters and learn to live graciously with disagreement. But you know our natural tendency? Our natural tendency is to reduce the number of costly costly relationships that we have to a minimum. Political differences, cut them off. Needy or annoying, cut them off. Financially dependent, cut them off. It is so much easier to settle into a little tribe within the broader body of Christ with folks who are in the same income bracket, share the same political opinions, enjoy the same activities and belong to the same organizations. But at the end of the day, this kind of tribal affection is not real Christian community. And it costs us very little. Now we've all seen this kind of tribalism throughout the past year, not just in American society, but also within the church as we've tried to cope with isolation, alienation, and deepening social conflict. In the face of this, Jesus is saying to each other, don't cut each other off. Learn to love each other better instead. Don't back off, double down. So if being a part of your community group or Bible study is hard, because loving other people is hard, then you are in the right place and you are doing the right thing. Life together, this life together, it is not meant to be easy or comfortable. In 1 Corinthians 13, which Ken read for us, Paul writes famously about love. And what, what you may not realize is that he, is, he isn't writing to a married couple about romantic love. He's actually writing to a dysfunctional church about Christian community. And this is what he says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love requires. It is costly. But you know, it also has the power to completely change the world. And that's our final point, the power of Christian love. So Jesus concludes his instructions by saying, by this, your love for each other, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The power of Christian love, it's seen in our witness to the world around us. Later in the New Testament, Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. That, of course, is a metaphor, but it's one we need to take seriously. We are the only Christ that the world will ever see. The church, the church is always in the act of painting a portrait of Jesus and displaying it to the world. How we treat each other gives those around us a picture of who Jesus is. But we don't have the luxury of painting in a studio correcting and perfecting our work before it goes on display. Our work, it's always in process and it's forever on display. And so our love for each other needs to be genuine, marked by service and by sacrifice at all times. When we mar the face of Jesus, 
the whole world sees it. But when we love each other well, when we lean in to serve and to sacrifice, when we grow together in unity in spite of our faults and foibles and differences, you know what happens? We paint a portrait more beautiful than the world can imagine is even possible. And when we do this, the world is given a chance to know Jesus truly, to trust him because he's lovely, and then to join this fellowship rooted in a love that they've never seen anywhere else and cannot believe they've been invited into. If you want to change the world, then love the people around you in the church community. This love is unique. This love is costly. But this love also has the power to change the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we can't do this on our own. We are far more likely to be like Judas than we are to fulfill this command. So we pray for your strength. We pray for the power of your spirit. We pray that we would hold before our eyes your love, your service, your sacrifice. Lord, teach us this love. May we bear the cost and may we be a part of how you change the world. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.